As, uh, as hopefully you're aware, if you've been here, you know that with this summer we're looking at the minor prophets. And my goal is not to go through each book, obviously, in one message and give you a verse-by-verse exegesis. That's not the goal. What I would really like to have happen is we get a taste for the Old Testament. Some of us have a tendency to only go to the New Testament and get back into the Old Testament and to get a taste of what these prophets and their message. One of the things that strikes me, especially again with Amos this week, was what the Lord was dealing with in the people in that time hasn't changed much. If you read through these uh, minor prophets, you'll discover God could be speaking clearly to this generation right here in this nation, especially this nation. So we're, that, you know, I want us to see these things are relevant, even though we sometimes don't want to spend too much time in the Old Testament. So this morning, as I said, we're in Amos. And remember, so in case some of you weren't here the first week, they're called the minor prophets, not because the message is less important than the major prophets. Remember why they're called the minor prophets? Way back in the day these prophets could fit on one scroll when they were putting them on scrolls. So they referred to them as the minor prophets. Major messages, just shorter messages. Amos is kind of an interesting one for a number of reasons. Um, One of them is his ministry may have lasted as few as two, three days. Can you imagine getting called to do something significant for the Lord and, and your ministry is over in about two, three days? This could be the case for him. When I talk about it being a timeless message, we're going to see that God, first of all, in the book of Amos in particular, we see that God does not want his people treating other people unjustly. There is injustice in the world. And as you are aware, if you're aware of current events, we're talking about a lot of injustice in the United States these days. Sometimes it's talked about probably in a way that is not accurate or misrepresented, but there is a lot of injustice. And God is going to deal with that here with his people Israel. At this time, Israel and Judah, the nations are separated, and Israel is in a time of amazing prosperity. You're going to go through this book and you're going to read about wealth, You're going to read about prospering. You're going to read about excess. You're going to read about comfort. You're going to read about greed. You're going to read about injustice and poverty, need and want. It's like there's almost two classes of people. The rich have gotten richer and the poor have gotten poorer. A familiar sounding refrain. But the real problem here isn't about what they have or don't have. It's the heart issue of the people. And in particular, the book of Amos is directed at the haves, those that have. Not because of what they have. Remember that. God will bless and prosper his people. But he is speaking this strong, powerful, prophetic word to these people because their hearts are so wrong. 
In Amos chapter 1, starting in verse 1, and I will be putting some of these scriptures up there, some of them not so much, but I wanted to look at verse 1 anyway because it gives us an idea who Amos was and one of the reasons I like this guy. He was a nobody. He was a farmer. He was a, a shepherd. Had some sycamore trees he took care of. It says, the words of Amos, who was among the sheep herders from Tekoa, which he envisioned all in visions. The Lord gave him these visions and spoke to him in visions. Concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. It's interesting, and there's more than one prophet makes reference to this earthquake, but historians don't know what that earthquake was. But it must have been a big deal. Isaiah mentions it, and others do also. But what I wanted to point out, go ahead and put the map up, would you please? I don't know if we can see it or not very well. But if you see the sea on the bottom, just your left of it, that's where this little village of Tekoa was. It's about 12 miles from Jerusalem. It's about not even 20 miles up to Bethel. If you see where Israel is, you see Bethel and Gilgal. And you'll see, I'm going to just make reference to the map because it's significant the way God deals not only with his people, but all the nations of the earth get dealt with by the Lord. They may not understand it, but they do. And he is just a shepherd out in the hills around Tekoa. And God speaks to him in visions. He says, I want you to go into Israel and share this message. And it is a powerfully strong, hard message for the people to hear. One of the things about Amos that's different than most of the other prophets, even the minor prophets, He gives about four or five verses at the very end of the chapter about God's blessing of restoration. That's it. The other ones might give you a chapter or two chapters. Here's the warning. Here's the caution. Here's the condemnation. But if you respond, here's what I'm going to do, and this is what's going to happen to Israel, and all these blessings are poured out. Amos doesn't get to give any of that hardly at all. Just the last few verses of the last chapter. It's written in approximately 750 B.C. That's the significant, really, when you see the names of certain kings. History knows when these guys were the kings in these different countries. So about 750 B.C. is when he wrote this. So when you see the issues that are being dealt with, they're almost 3,000 years ago, and they aren't any different than today. You'd almost think it's true that there's nothing new under the sun. The message is as I said, was directed primarily at the wealthy and the privileged people because of the way they treated the poor and the attitudes that they had about the poor. They were wealthy, but they were also greedy. They were also dishonest, and they were also taking advantage. And we'll touch on these as we go a little bit further. And when Amos received the word from the Lord, he just went. And you'll see a little later, he even declares, I'm just a farmer. Maybe you can see where I connected with this about 30 years ago. You're getting called into the ministry to do something. You're scared to death. I'm just a farmer. I'm just a feed salesman. I'm just a nobody. And God just says, hey, just be obedient. 
And that's what Amos did. He was obedient to the call in his life. One of the scriptures that, or one of the, the pictures, the prophetic picture that the book of Amos is known for is the, the use of a picture of a plumb line. You know what a plumb line is? It's a, something they'll use in building to make sure that things stay straight. A plumb line, and it hangs, and it shows you the straight line. I want to read a couple of verses in Amos 7 where it talks about this. Verse 7, it says, Then he showed me another vision. This is Amos speaking. I saw the Lord standing beside a wall that had been built using a plumb line. He was using a plumb line to see if it was still straight. So the picture now is of a wall. Is the wall being built straight? Really, it has nothing to do with a wall. It's a prophetic picture. And he says, And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I answered, A plumb line. And the Lord replied, I will test my people with this plumb line. I will no longer ignore all their sins. The pagan shrines of your ancestors will be ruined, and the temple of Israel will be destroyed, and I will bring the dynasty of King Jeroboam to a sudden end. A plumb line. You know, as human beings, we have a tendency to compare ourselves in such a way that whoever we compare ourselves to, we make sure we're just a little bit better. We, we, we usually judge ourselves probably more righteously than we should unless we're reminded that we are righteous in Christ and that's it. But we have a tendency. And, and God is saying, there's a plumb line here and this is what it is. It's me. I'm going to compare my people to myself, to my law in the Old Testament, to my character, to my heart. How do you and I compare ourselves? How do we measure ourselves? Do we measure ourselves to the only standard that we should, Christ? And we know we all fall short, but by the grace of God, He loves us, called us, saved us. And He declares us righteous because of Christ. Nothing in me. So the plumb line here is this, I'm going to make sure. And you know what? My nation, my people, they failed miserably. And therefore, this prophetic word is a word about judgment that's going to be delivered. And it was a message that Amos doesn't want to hear. And really, think about it. How many of us want to hear a message judging us or convicting us, warning us? Most of the time, we're not open to that. And the people of Israel didn't want to hear it. And Amos really wasn't all that gung-ho about giving it. And there was a priest in Israel at that time called Amaziah. And Amaziah was at the priest at Bethel. Would you go back to that map for a second, please? On the map where we saw Bethel, the people of Israel decided they didn't really all need to go to, Israel, or to Jerusalem to worship. So they started worshiping at Bethel and also Gilgal, which you'll see very close to it on the map. And they did that on their own. This was not God's idea. So they were in violation right away. And we're going to see as I read these next verses in Amos 7, starting in verse 10. I believe that's on the, on the screen. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent a message to Jeroboam, king of Israel. Okay, so here's the priest running to the king. And he says, Amos is hatching a plot against you right here on your very doorstep. What he is saying is intolerable. 
He is saying Jeroboam will soon be killed. That's the king. And the people of Israel will be soon sent away into exile. Then Amaziah sent orders to Amos. He says, get out of here, you prophet. Go, to the, go back to the land of Judah and earn your living by prophesying there. You can almost hear the sarcasm dripping as this priest, supposedly of the Most High God, is rebuking the prophet of God. Go back there. And then he says, don't bother us with your prophecy here in Bethel. Don't bother us with word of the Lord. Don't bother us about the way we're living. Leave us alone. And then he goes on and says, this is the king's sanctuary and the national place of worship. Let me paraphrase that for you. We've been bought and paid for by the king. Leave us alone. Don't rock the boat. The supposed religious leader of Israel in this divided kingdom. And then Amos replies to him and says, I'm not a professional prophet. I was never trained to be one. I'm just a shepherd and I take care of sycamore fig trees. But the Lord called me away from the flock and told me, go and prophesy to my people in Israel. Now then, listen to this message from the Lord. So try to get a picture of the people and where their heart was. They're prospering under Jeroboam the king. They're prospering. There's wealth. They're rich. Lives of leisure. And they're doing all of this on the backs of the poor, taking advantage of them as we're going to see in just a few moments. So the main message or the big idea if you go through the book of Amos is that God is saying, I'm not going to put up with this social injustice. I'm not going to put up with your attitudes and your hearts. I'm not going to put up with this sin anymore. And I'm not going to allow you to live this way. And I'm surely going to punish you as the people and as a nation for violating demands of justice. That's kind of the big picture. The wealthy considered their wealth and prosperity a sign of God's blessing and divine blessing upon them. Didn't matter how they accumulated it. It was in their mind, God's hands on us. God's favor is on us. And as if that wasn't bad enough, their attitude towards the poor was, they deserve their lot in life. They don't worship the way we do. They don't sacrifice the way we do. It didn't matter that they couldn't afford to buy anything to have to sacrifice to the Lord. So their attitude was all about themselves, and therefore, because I'm prospering, because wealthy, got good food, good clothes, good houses, God's divine blessing is upon me. And those, lo- those, those losers, those poor people, they're getting exactly what they deserve. No compassion for the people whatsoever. So we're going to look at four themes that you'll see, and we're going to just look at them quite quickly. The first theme is this, everyone answers to God. And we see this in the first couple of chapters. Uh, Would you put the map up there again, please? Now, this is the teacher thing in me. I like knowing this stuff. If you don't, well, just take a short nap. (laughs) 
If you look at that map and you take some time and you read the first couple of chapters, you're going to hear, you're going to read these words over and over and over. You're going to read them at least seven times, maybe eight times. I, I lost track. For three transgressions or sins, and then it says of Damascus or Gaza or this, and lists all these nations. And what it's, and, and, and for four. So the statement is, and for these three transgressions by so and so, and for four. And what that phrase simply means, for sin upon sin. It's not that there was three specific things, and oh yeah, here came the fourth, now I'm gonna crush them. It was for sin upon sin. It's just a phrase that he used to express that thought. And he says, because of that, and if you go through, you're going to see Gaza down here on the left, the Philistines, Philistia. And you'll, you'll mention even the other towns that are listed. Over here on the lower right, you, you can't see it on the map. It's down by Basra. That is the area called Edom. He says, I'm going to wipe them out. I'm going to judge them. Then you go up to Ammon, going up the right side. I'm going I'm to judge them. You go all the way up to the top there. There's where Damascus is. Over on the coastline where it says Tyrus or Tyre, he gets them. He says, I'm coming after them. And he goes on with all of these nations surrounding his people who live in Judah and Israel. And he's not going to just judge them. He says, I'm judging them all. I am so fed up and sick and tired of their sin, I'm not going to put up with it anymore. But he also then addresses Judah, the southern, and Israel, the northern, his chosen people. Judgment's going to start with God's own people too. So the first thing we need to understand is God is going to hold all nations, all people accountable to him. But he's, and, and, and that includes his people, his chosen people. And he announces these judgments against these seven nations. And then he gives, as if that's not bad enough, when he gets to Israel, he's, he starts with three seething messages to Israel. And each one starts out like in verse, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. It starts out with this phrase, Hear this word which the Lord has spoken against you, sons of Israel, against the entire family which he brought up from the land of Egypt. And he warns them three or four different times. He starts with that phrase. Listen to these words. And he reminds them who they are, his chosen people. And he says, this is what's coming because you've sinned against me. In verses 7 and 8 of chapter 3, surely the Lord does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets. And then he says, the lion has roared. Judgment is coming. And then he asks, aren't you afraid? Will you not fear? You can hear the heart of God almost in this frustration. My chosen people, I put up with you for so long. And I've given you so many warnings. I've cautioned you so many times. I want to bless you. I want to love you. I want to minister life to you. And instead, you neglect everything I say. And now I'm sent Amos the prophet, almost as if I'm going to give you one more chance. But it didn't happen. The people didn't respond. So the first thing, God will judge all nations. 
Second one is this attitude of complacency. Complacency that enters into God's people, enters into God's church. We can risk becoming very complacent as born-again believers. And the caution here, with all the comfort, with all the luxury that the Lord and the, the people of Israel were experiencing, it gave them this false sense of security. It's easy. You know, we, we, you've heard this before. I've said it before. I've thought it before. Who needs God when everything's going good? Right? Who needs Him then? A little trouble comes. Oh, yeah, I'm going to call my insurance agent. Dear Jesus, he's saying to us here, do not become complacent no matter what. And here it was in their prosperity. I'm going to take a few more moments and I'll read a few more scriptures that probably I don't think are on the screen. It's in chapter 6 for those of you that are following in your Bibles. Starting in verse 1, woe to those who are at ease in Zion. Woe to you that are in comfort. Those of you that are living lives of luxury, those that are you living in lives of indulgence, woe to you and to those who fear, feel secure in the mountain of Samaria, which was the capital of Israel at that time. You think you're secure there? No. The distinguished men of the foremost of nations to whom the house of Israel comes. And then in verse 2 he says, check out these other people. You think you're better than them? And then in verse 3 he goes on, do not put off the day of calamity. In other words, don't pretend like it's not coming. Don't ignore this warning. And would you bring near the seat of violence, sitting so close to judgment, and you're going to pretend like it's not happening? And then he goes on and describes their life of luxury in verse 4. Those who recline on beds of ivory, sprawl on their couches. They eat lamb from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who improvise to the sound of the harp. And like David, have composed songs for themselves and drink wine from the sacrificials of bowls. And then they anoint themselves with the finest of oils. He says, you might like all that stuff, but guess what? It's coming to an end. Don't get complacent, self-sufficient, enjoying their lives of comfort and prosperity. They didn't need in their mind, to heed God's warning. Same for his people today. You know, we need to never become complacent. We need to realize that every good thing is from God. We need to have hearts overwhelmed with thankfulness, thanksgiving continually for all that he blesses us with. Remember, it's not about what we have that's the problem. It's the heart, the attitude that the people had. And the third major theme that I want to mention is going back to the poor oppressing the poor. The wealthy and the powerful people of Samaria, which was the capital, as I said, they had become prosperous. They had become greedy. They had become totally unjust. They had incorporated illegal and immoral slavery of the poor. And that happened because of overtaxation and taking their land. And there was cruelty and total indifference towards the poor. We see in Amos' message, God is tired of greediness, and he is tired of injustice. And he's going to judge his people for that. Now, I'm not stressing it as much as Amos did, but this theme of injustice towards the poor goes throughout the whole book. 
because it goes so against God's heart. So against his heart. I want to read in Amos chapter 5, verse 10, a little bit about God's indictment of the people. How you hate honest judges. How you despise people who tell the truth. You trample the poor, stealing their grain through taxes and unfair rent. Therefore, though you build beautiful stone houses, you will never live in them. Though you plant lush vineyards, you will never drink the wine from them. For I know the vast number of your sins and the depth of your rebellion. You oppress good people by taking bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. So those who are smart keep their mouths shut, for it is an evil time. And then in verse 8 of Micah 6, here's the heart of the Lord. And you can see why His judgment of His people is so strong for what they're doing. In Micah chapter 6, God's prophetic word, He has showed you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you. Most of us have heard this verse before. It's so simple. But it reveals God's heart and why He's so opposed to what's going on amongst His people. This is what the Lord requires of you. Act justly. Love mercy. And walk humbly before your God. Act justly. Treat others like Jesus would treat them. Meet their needs. Share where you can. Show mercy. Humble yourself before the Lord. The fourth one, probably, well, they're all, they're all bad. This one's really obnoxious to me. It's their superficial religion. They're fake religion. God's attitude towards this should put the fear of the Lord in all. In Amos chapter 4, and God's addressing this attitude pretending, basically, pretending to be religious, pretending to really be worshiping Him, and he even, he even confronts, and I read a couple of the scriptures before, he even cr- condemns their music, condemns the songs that they're writing to please themselves. Not true worship. In verse 4 of Amos chapter 4, he's talking to the people. Now remember, we're focusing on their, their religious attitudes. And he says, go to Bethel and sin. Go to Gilgal and send some more. Bring your sacrifices every morning. Bring your tithes every three years. Burn leavened bread as a thank offering. Brag about your free will offerings. Boast about them, you Israelites, for this is what you love to do, declares the Sovereign Lord. He's looking at all of these religious activities that they love to do and makes them feel good about who they are because it looks like they're worshiping God. And really all they're doing is going through some religious motion, religious activities to make themselves feel like they've met the quota or something like that. 
Does worship simply make you feel good? And there's nothing wrong with worship making you feel good when God is ministering to us. And it should make us feel good when we're truly worshiping the Lord. But if all it's doing is making us feel good, God's saying, I am not impressed with that worship. Does it honor God? He says, you know what, you Israelites? You love your corrupt worship. You love your corrupt worship. Go ahead. Go do it. I'm going to judge you for it. Amos chapter 5, verse 21. God's attitude about their worship. I hate it. I despise your religious feast. I cannot stand your assemblies. And even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I won't accept them. Though you bring your choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. God said, I don't care about... As a matter of fact, not only do I not care because I'm not neutral, I hate this stuff. What I want is righteousness, holiness. That's what I want. In verse 6 through 12 of Amos, he goes through and reminds the people over and over that he's given them chances. Actually, in verse 6, 8, 9, 10, and 11, he tells them five times, yet you have not returned to me. You've not returned to me. And then in verse 12, he gives this short phrase that should put the fear of the Lord in his people. He says, prepare to meet your God. I've warned you. I've warned you, I've warned you, and yet you have not returned to me. Prepare to meet your God. Amos gave a tough message from the Lord. God had been patient for many, many, many years. And God looked on this nation of Israel, in particular Israel, and he said, enough is enough. What you're doing is not pleasing me at all, especially the way you're treating the poor, the lack of justice, the injustice. You know, and as Christians even, we need to be careful. Christians can sometimes stay so focused on what we call the important things. You know, they're important, you know, like prayer, teaching, preaching, we can, we can stay so focused on them, we forget about what we might consider not quite as important, meeting the needs of the suffering, loving the unlovable, going out of our way, sacrificing of our own time, talent, treasure to minister to those that are less fortunate than us. Those important things are important things, but so is serving other people. So is loving other people. So is meeting the needs of other people. You know, God calls us to be in relationship with himself, but he also causes us to be in relationship with people. He wants us in relationship with other people, to fellowship with other people. Yes, our like-minded believers for sure, but also the lost, the hurting of the world, reaching out to them, demonstrating the love of Christ. How can we do a better job of that? How can you as an individual do a better job of that? How can your family do a better job of that? How can we as a church do a better job of that? 
we hear about how tough things are getting out there. Are we looking to see who can we help who's going through a tough time? How do we minister to a hurting world around us to first show them the love of Christ that we might get to talk to them about the love of Christ? We all know that political, the political world is not going to solve our problems. Money is not going to solve our problems. Jesus is going to solve the problems. But we know what that means doesn't necessarily mean we're going to live in peace and comfort because we know what the Bible says about the end times. But he promises no matter what, he's going to bless his people. He's going to protect his people. And I believe part of that providing for his people will be providing for us that we can also meet the needs of others because this is what the Lord wants us to do. How can we do it? I want to close with one last scripture. It's in Matthew to show us, I believe, where God's heart is about ministering to other people. He says in Matthew chapter 25, verse 35, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And they ask him, Lord, when did we do these things? We haven't even seen you in those situations before. And in verse 40, the king answers and says to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. You did it to me. Meaning, in my mind, this is what the Lord wants us to do to others. And if we need a motivation, what greater motivation could there be than as we do this to, uh, for, to others and for others, we're doing it unto him. Let's close in prayer. Father, I pray that as we continue to look at these prophets in the Old Testament, we don't look at it as ancient history as much as we look at it as the Lord speaking to people. And we see that these things, these truths in your word are eternal. God, there is an old covenant and there is a new covenant. And thank you, God, for the new covenant of grace. But Lord, your heart doesn't change. God, may our hearts as your children truly represent the heart of Jesus. May we truly be Christ to those around us. May we humble ourselves, show mercy, and act justly in every situation. God, I pray you would bring those opportunities across our paths as individuals, as families, and as a church to be able to minister to the needs that are all around us and that the days that are ahead where things are going to even get more challenging the way it looks, that we would be your hands and feet, that we might live and demonstrate the gospel leading to the opportunity to share the gospel with the world around us. So, Father, we pray for those opportunities to come across your paths. Give us the grace to see them and the grace to respond. And we pray, Lord, in all these things, you receive all the glory and honor and praise. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.